Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. I want to welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea, a very special episode today. We're joined by Sorab Amari. Sorab, uh, until recently, was the op-ed editor of the New York Post. He's left News Corp now after a decade of service. Um, but he to form a new venture in political journalism, but he has a long and distinguished career in journalism and in the media. We're so delighted that you could join us today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. You're a prolific author. You've written a number of very interesting books. Your latest I've got right here in front of me, The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. Before that, you wrote a memoir of your conversion to Catholicism from fire by water, and before that, the New Philistines, a discussion of the arts and the corruption of the arts. You're a wide-ranging author. Uh, You are a person who reflects on the importance of contemporary events in light of larger ideas, larger thoughts, larger traditions, as your latest book suggests. I want to talk about some of those ideas today, some of those larger thoughts and ideas that you've been reflecting on, and how they uh, help our listeners think about the state of America and the moral condition of humanity, if that's not too big a topic. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with you and your own, and your own biography. Yeah. Fascinating story. You were born in Tehran, Iran. Yes. And yet here you are. In the United States, as a person in your mid-30s, tell us about your journey sure. from there to here. Uh, yes, I was born in Tehran, um, actually six years exactly to the day that the Ayatollah Khomeini returned from his um, Parisian exile to mm. herald the Islamic Republic and topple the Shah. Um, grew up in a middle-class, urbane, intellectual milieu. My... Um, Mother was an artist. My dad was an abstract. Uh, sorry, my mother was an abstract expressionist painter. My father was a would describe himself as a postmodernist architect. Uh-huh. Imagine all this in post-revolutionary yes. Iran, and lived in this world of uh, you know of tension between what happens behind our closed doors, surrounded by Western books and movies and ideas. Not all of it highbrow, by the way. You know, a lot of Reagan era movies and cartoons, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then the world outside, which was the Islamic Republic of Iran, newly Islamizing an Iranian society that was going in a secular direction under the former regime. And then um, and in, in the midst of that, I became a I became an atheist when I was maybe 12, 13 years old. Mm. Um, in reaction to the regime? Kind, more or less, but also not just there was this element of um, if you were an intellectual in Iran, you were an unbeliever, ah. right? If you were, you, you, religion was something for the, for the provincials. It, it was not for sophisticated people. So that was part of it. And then absolutely some elements of it in reaction to the regime, because it associate, you know, after a while, when God gets associated with judicial amputations and um, um, floggings and so forth, you sort of, Mm-hmm. <laughs> it yeah. tends to sour one on the things of God. Um, then I immigrated to the United States, very excited to come to what I thought as my American promised land of kind of radical individualism, secularism. I kind of imagined a decadent Manhattan uh-huh. uh, of the 1980s. That was what I thought. And then we sort of boarded the plane to get to the United States and our 
we got it came here through the green card process through the what's called the family preference visa program aka chain migration so we got on the aircraft you know came to amsterdam first the first leg and then the second leg would have brought us to america and you know, you know the flight path is displayed in the front of the airplane back in the day you didn't have individual monitors yeah, on right. the front of your seat and it showed us going right over manhattan and landing somewhere called uh you know minneapolis st paul like okay this is this is not manhattan and i we get but we got on another plane and it landed somewhere called salt lake city utah um and then my uncle came and picked us up in a truck and took took us to his, the town where he lived which was called Eden, Utah. And as you came in, the said like POP population 608, something like that. <laughs> you're a you're a far distance from Urbane, man. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so no, and then I mean the, to make a long story short, then there's this long intellectual and political journey, which has me going first reading Nietzsche, as many, I guess, 16, 17-year-olds do, and being electrified by the idea that God is dead. So what can you do with that? So I then kind of trace the path of Oh, at least one path of continental thought. So then I kind of became a serious Marxist mm. um, and then gradually become politically, say, small C conservative um, through a kind of long period of reading and reflecting on my own experiences and so forth. And then there is a spiritual one, which is the one that's really traced in the memoir of coming from that worldview to first assenting to the idea that there is a God and then ultimately a personal God and ultimately the, that personal God as I um, encountered him in the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, at 31, I became a Catholic. So Fascinating. Yeah. Your movement toward Catholicism, is there a particular thinker that you encountered? Was it a particular experience? Was it a, a parish priest? What was it that started that movement for you? So there were two sets of experiences. One was the purely intellectual and reading things. So mm. I um, reading <laughs> like the Bible and reading the Torah and, and um, finding it to be a very true account of what was broken about the world. Um, not literally, but uh, mm -hmm. nevertheless true. Mm -hmm. um, reading Pope Benedict's books, um, Jesus of Nazareth, that whole trilogy. But it wasn't even for me like reading that Benedict and be like, hmm, I'm persuaded by this or that particular claim, but just the idea that, ah, okay, there is this whole world of Christian thought that is very, very serious. And so it is not the case that religion is only for, you know, superstitious provincial people or something like that. Um, that was very important. Uh, and then alongside that, a couple of what I can only describe as providential encounters with the mass and those... Hmm. Like in moments of, you know, 20 something crisis, I would, I would sometimes go to mass and I couldn't explain why, except that I had the sense that this is quote unquote original Christianity. It has a certain prestige for me, maybe, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And um, those combination of things finally came together when I was living in London. I was working for the Wall Street Journal at the time, running the um, European opinion pages, mm -hmm. helping run the European opinion pages. And um I went to one particular mass uh, at the London Oratory, which is this church very famous for traditional liturgies. And that's, I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to become a Catholic. Hmm. And your, how has this been received, if you don't mind my asking, by your family? Oh, oh, my family, as, as I described them, they're um, either seculars. So they're like, oh, this is amusing, you know, um, mm -hmm. in a harmless way. Um, 
or in the case of my mother, for example, she's been a spiritual seeker in her own life. Mm. And so actually she became an evangelical Christian before I became Catholic years earlier. And it's interesting. It's funny. At the time, this was when I was reading Benedict and I was finding myself in some ways persuaded by the Christian message. But because outwardly I couldn't bring myself to say that yet, I thought I would be counted among these like gullible saps. I would tell my mom, oh, you must be lonely. This gives you solace in a kind of very condescending way. So to make long story short, she actually, when I did tell her that I became a Christian as well, she was thrilled. Huh. So among my own family, either kind of indifference, you know, slash amusement or, you know, actively welcoming. Hmm. Uh, it seems to me if I look at your work, when I read your pieces uh, and when I listen to you in your many, many interviews, read your books. To me, it seems like there's a common theme running through many of them, including your most recent book, which is just terrific. I want to commend it to our listeners. You seem deeply concerned about the moral health of societies, whether that's one of your first books that you co-edited on the Arab Spring and the moral health of Middle Eastern, North African societies, or whether it's contemporary American society. How did that interest, that concern develop in you? Oh, that's a very good question. I should say that um, the Arab Spring Dreams is a book I've um, explicitly rebuked uh -huh. uh, or, or refuted, I should say, in the sense that, um, you know, that I was 24 years old when I edited this anthology of essays by young Middle Eastern Middle Easterners who don't fit into the, the, the normal warp and weft of their societies for one reason or another. And, um, you know, it was, it's very naively welcoming of the Arab Spring. And then almost within a year, you saw the outcome turn sour. Mm -hmm. And so um, then maybe three, four years after that, on the fifth or sixth anniversary of the Arab Spring, I wrote an essay in the Wall Street Journal basically saying I was wrong. And here's why I was wrong. Mm -hmm. But no, so that, just to say that, but then to answer your question, I don't know. I mean, I, I think partly it's my straddling of different worlds type of experience of straddling east and west um straddling a world of of various kinds of secularists including iranian secular liberals mm -hmm. but also here in the united states you know my my entree to the conservative world were the sort of secular neoconservatives so those those guys but then also having this moral and spiritual uh uh curiosity mm -hmm. right and, mm -hmm. and just like you know looking at xyz elements in a society say okay which of these um reflects some deeper truth about what it means to be fully fully human and which of them are just um historically contingent mm -hmm. they may be traditional or received things but actually just, there's nothing nothing that legitimates them internally or intrinsically right and so you can critique those and that's that's um, the journalistic project for me. Yeah. And I should, I should say, I mean, in all the books you mentioned, all of them are works of journalism one way or another. I'm not, a, I'm not an academic. So they're all kind of, uh, they, they certainly draw on kind of the realm of big ideas, but in this. I would say draw deeply. That's very kind of you. But in a, in a, in a journalistic vein, that would be familiar to readers of a kind of, mm -hmm. uh, of the American conservative tradition of journalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you have been here speaking to students uh, and to the university community here 
uh, I know about social media and freedom of the press. What's the moral condition of the press in the United States? So the American press as I encounter it, and I think as a lot of Americans encounter it, is a profoundly morally ir irresponsible institution mm. um, that has abandoned all of its own venerable certainties that helped guide it um, and instead pursued um, the promotion of an ideology that happens to be the ideology of a narrow elite in this country. Mm. In some ways, it serves the material interests of that narrow elite, but it's bad for everyone else. Um, and so just the simple, let, let's give an example, the simple question of you let truth take you where it may is under pressure from today's, most of today's press, except for a few honorable exceptions, all of whom one way or another have now basically been banished from the mainstream. Hmm. Um, but to give an example would be the recent um, incident in Waukesha, right? Where someone um, ran over six people. Um, the, the person, the perpetrator happened to be African-American in a time when the press is very much concerned about uh, racial issues in the United States. But um, the fact of him doing it and seemingly having political motivations based on his public long record of public statements where he hates white people and so on and so forth is very uncomfortable for the narrative, the elite narrative about race in this country mm. in which, you know, it's just like white Americans are hunting black people for sport. It's just not true. It's ahistorical. So what do the press do? Lots of media outlets, not just on social media, but also the actual reporting kept referring to the SUV then swerved the SUV the incident at the, the parade crash, the, the tragic parade incident, but never saying that this was like essentially taking the active agent out of the story because it's uncomfortable. So that's, you know, that's that's not good for the country or immediately framing certain Americans, you know, some kid who's at some pro-life rally in Washington. Um, and there's some confrontation between him and some Native American elder and immediately framing him as a white supremacist or anything like that without any evidence um that's that's very so that's not pursuing truth where it leads you it's not doing the traditional method of oh okay this person says this but let's hear the other side these right. these outlets wouldn't have been sued for example by nicholas sandman's this this incident that i'm talking about had they just done the normal kind of routines of the profession um uh yeah so i mean this is all is a it, it, it's a moral crisis, but it's also just a basic professional crisis. It, a lot of these problems could be avoided by sticking to the rules um, and, mm -hmm. and not, not being so determined to push a narrative. You had um, authority, as you say, in the Wall Street Journal, and then, of course, working at New York Post and the opinion pages there to try to ensure the kind of professionalism that you're talking about. How did you what? How did you do that? How difficult was that in the in the press and the hurly burly of twenty four seven news cycle? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I should say my role. We could focus on the New York Post as obviously as the op ed editor. So I oversaw our by our regular columnists mm -hmm. and then um, outside contributors who uh, uh, either submit things or uh, we uh, recruit them specifically ask, commission them asking for specific pieces and so it, it, it's a little bit different but i think what i tried to emphasize as opinion as an opinion editor was to have more 
reported opinion, and it's something that's very hmm. kind of a, is very dear to me than just, especially this is a problem on right of center publications. The ones that I work for are all right of center publications, Wall Street Journal, Victoria Place, and um, and the New York Post. We have too many people who just have hot takes. They have like they they react to events, but it's the mainstream left that sets the agenda. They do the reporting. So I tr- I tried as much as possible to, especially with younger journalists who come to me, and there's a 21 years old, 22 years old. I love the eagerness. I've been that eager person. Um, they're hungry. They want to be published, but I'm like, I'm not interested in the opinions of a 21 year old yet. Yet, <laughs> Go report, pick up the phone, uh-huh. go meet someone you haven't met before, profile someone, go underground, it's something like that. And so that's, you know, I think as an opinion editor, that's an important responsibility to think of it as, as a, as equally a reportorial duty mm, interesting. as being a news quote unquote journalist. Yeah. Um, you have been very public in your critique of the media, as you're just suggesting now. And as you know, there's a division among conservatives over engagement with social media. Mm. Some people arguing it's hopelessly corrupt. Conservatives should not be involved with it um, because of its slant and not just its politics, but also the, the reduction of thought. And some have argued, no, 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 it exists. So conservatives need to be engaged and shape it as much as they can. Where do you fall in that? Debate? I'm absolutely on the latter. Um, just because I have to be honest, from my own professional interest, if I left Twitter, um, you know, I have 120,000 some followers. Mm-hmm. If I left Twitter, that's 120,000 people who won't see a piece I published, whether it's under my own byline or something I've edited and I want to get out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm in the in favor of us being at the table as much as possible everywhere. So not disengagement. But I, what I would add to that is that we also need to have a political response to the political ways in which these companies are behaving. Um, it, it cannot be that we just say, well, they're private actors. They can do whatever they want. This is our public square. Mm. In, in, in our actually existing public square is not like the town square you can stand out there and shout like i believe xyz and most people will think you're a nutter if you want to get heard it's on these platforms and so that means free speech this american tradition lives or dies on these platforms and so um when they so obviously kind of encroach on one side and attempt to have an editorial worldview then they can no longer be thought of as these neutral platforms to be left alone so you think you're in favor of for example treating them as common carriers that's when reforming section 230. Both of those. Yeah. I mean, common carries is something Justice Thomas uh, mentioned in a, 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 not a decision, decision, but he's in, in a piece of writing where he said, this is becoming a reality. And, you know, your phone company can't discriminate against you based on your political views or an airline or uh, airline passenger airline can't do that. So why do these, these platforms? And the other one is section 230 is just so manifestly unfair as you as you know you know like if we at the post at the time when i was there if you published libelous material about someone it's not just the author but the outlet that could be but mm-hmm. in the, these outlets have a kind of exemption from that um liability carved out by congress under the communications decency act of 1996 on the premise that they'll only censor you know violent content um and and uh, pornography and so forth, but not worldviews or mm-hmm. opinions. And they're, they're doing the exact reverse. You can find all sorts of pornography on Twitter and Facebook, but you can be censored for 
stating opinions that half the country might believe. So the the law as it was written did not reflect what these platforms would become. So it needs to be updated somehow to take account of that reality. Do you have any thoughts on how it should be updated? Well, I'm so I I, I favor the, the the Justice Thomas. Uh, I think common carry is a, is an absolute reality, and so p- people should not be unpersoned wantonly on these platforms as they have been, including the president of the United States at one point. But, um, you know, because this is your, this is part of your identity now, this is your social life. So if, you know, if they have the power to do this, you suddenly lose your voice in the community. Um, And so that's, that's a very big issue. But as far as section 230, like I, I would say as, as some have, I think Senator Hawley and others have said, let's just remove that protection and that, that will get them to, really act like platforms. Do you know any students with an interest in American history, politics, economics, and literature? Do they enjoy being academically challenged and the thrill of engaging with different ideas and viewpoints? Hi, I'm Sabrina Maristella, Student Programs Coordinator here at the Ashbrook Center. The Ashbrook Academy is a series of summer courses for rising high school juniors and seniors. Held in person at Ashland University, the Academy immerses you in the American story like you've never been before. Since 2015, our approach has taken history out of textbooks and into students' lives with historical documents and conversations about those documents. If you are a rising high school junior or senior, or if you know someone who is, we invite you to learn more about our courses and apply today at ashbrookacademy.org. Um, your latest book, the one we mentioned before, The Unbroken Thread, um, the subtitle is Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. What moved you, a, a person who's commenting often on public affairs, political issues, media issues, to write this book, which is obviously has a, a connection to public and the way people live their lives in public, but also has some profoundly uh, theological moral, personal questions. What moved you to take up that? So it's a book I wrote for my son, uh, Maximilian. He's four and a half now. He was two when I started writing the book. And it's born of this anxiety of what kind of a man our our culture will chisel out of him. Um, my fear, which I draw in this kind of introduction, is not that he'll become some like sort of absolute failure at life. Given our social economic um arrangements chances are he will inherit his and my, his mother's and my um kind of upper middle class status mm-hmm. but my fear is to become just kind of like a soulless davos meritocrat <laughs> you know he comes home all he can talk about is kind of money he he hasn't he has this anxiety of any kind of commitment because he's been told by our culture that the most important thing for him is to quote unquote keep his options open and not not be tied down whether that's by one particular location or geography or one particular person as his partner. So that's, those are the kinds of anxieties. And so then I say, okay, how do I, where do we, where, what led us to a world in which I have this anxiety? Well, it's because we stopped asking certain questions that were very important to, let's say the, the ancients or the pre-moderns mm-hmm. and that the moderns say, no, we've answered that. We don't, you know, science, we have now science. We don't need this kind of moral line of inquiry when in fact that, line of inquiry is still pertinent to a truly sort of fully human life. Mm. And so then I picked 12 of those questions. And because I'm a journalist, I, I answer them not in my own voice, but through the biographies of 12 
um, thinkers, some of them modern, some of them ancient, and um, and it's all very narrative based. It's a work of popularization. It's a, it's a work of intellectual popularization. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what are you looking at this and, and the 12 thinkers? And maybe this is an unfair question because the profiles in here of these thinkers are really remarkable and you bring them to life in a wonderful way. Thank you. Um, but our listeners will be interested to know who's your favorite pre 20th century thinker? Uh, I mean, I, I'll pick from the book, although they're. There are others who aren't there, but um, okay. The, of, of one who's not in the book, I think um, Aristotle, the sort of this genius for common sense. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so much of reality becomes legible in his work. Um, of the ones who are represented in the book, and Aristotle is not, um, I would say um, John Henry Newman is most special to me. Mm. He's, he's in the book weighing in on the question of conscience and authority. How do you how do you preserve conscience against authorities' claims, or are they really at war or not? And so that's why he's there. But to me, is very special because of just his his emphasis on conscience itself, in terms of why you would be moved by conscience to believe in God. Hmm. In his Apologia, yeah. this is not covered in the book, but it's very special to me because the path that he traces from his own conscience to becoming a Catholic eventually is very similar to to my own yeah. right i didn't have this particular vocabulary that he has but um uh, that there exists within me this voice that seems to reflect some universal moral law and therefore the existence of that voice and that objective moral order which it somehow reflects points to the existence of a supreme being i think yeah. newman would be a choice for many yes yeah yeah it's absolutely yeah uh, also because um the church where i was received brompton oratory yeah. The, he Newman was an oratorian, uh, and he didn't he didn't he didn't get along with the London oratorians. He was uh, he was at Birmingham, and they had their but at any rate, there was a there was a Newman altar at that um, church that I would pray pray it uh, before when I was preparing to be received into the church. I see. So that is a very special character to me in that book. Yeah. What about contemporary or or twentieth twenty first century thinkers? Mm. Who, who are you reading and profiting from? Mm. Um, I would say there is, oh, so many, but I'm, I'm currently, I'm ramping up to write a new book and, um, it's, it's more to do with political economy. And so I think a lot of the problems raised in the unbroken thread, if we were to begin to try to solve them at a collective level, it would have to take a, um, political economy type of, um, shape. Well, that's interesting and surprising to me. Um, Help us understand that. So, yeah, so um, a lot of our, um, without sounding like a crude kind of vulgar Marxist, a, there are a lot of our ideological battles and the, the phenomena that conservatives might decry um, do have some material substrate, right? So like if we have a, an economy in which people are, um, people feel powerless against larger kind of impersonal forces, everything is marketized, um, then that will also reflect whether or how they, how and whether they worship, how and whether they form families and so forth. Mm. So that, um, you know, this is addressed to an intelligent young person who senses the, the unbroken thread, who senses something is wrong and seeks kind of individual answers. And that's very legitimate. But in terms of like, how do we fix it at a collective level? I think it it takes a material, 
glance as well. So it's, uh, if I can say this, is it fair to characterize it as sort of a book on the political economy of a morally healthy society? Absolutely. Absolutely. So who do I read? Because to answer your actual question, who do I read for that right now? I'm, I'm interested in Christopher Lash a lot. Mm. In this kind of American tradition, let's say, that stretches from, from the Jacksonians through the agrarian uh, the figures of the agrarian uprising through the um, populist progressives. Fascinating. And then intellectually now, like that line that stretches from Lash to Michael Lind with Michael, with Patrick Deneen somewhere there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And all of them trying to figure out, okay, we need to raise up a countervailing force against large corporations, large trusts. It's an ongoing problem in American life, especially post-industrial revolution. Lincoln, Lincoln as an economic thinker. Uh-huh. Um, um, and that that, yeah. that whole milieu, and they know, it's not they all agree, you know, obviously there's individual right. disagreements, right. but there's this line of a kind of counter counter tradition um, that that stretches all the way, I would say, from Jacksonians to Michael Lind. So to the extent we could call your thought conservative, you're interested in a conservatism that is not simply free trade, free market. Oh, totally. Open yeah. to these other kind of traditions that you're talking about. Yes. And you're looking for a kind of political economy that helps to develop that. Correct. In, very interesting. Who's your favorite American in American history? If I can, if, unfair question, I know. You know, it, it would have to be Lincoln. It would have to be Lincoln. As a, not just as a, as the- Well, that's I mean, a good answer in the Shram Library. I know, I, I'm, Lincoln. I'm, I'm surrounded by, <laughs> and it's not why I picked it. It's, it's, um, what is it about Abraham Lincoln that you most admire? So I most admire him not just obviously as the as the great emancipator, but um, as again, like I said, as a moral thinker on economic issues. Um, mm. The 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 speech to the Wisconsin Agricultural Society, which many people cite, including yeah. uh, Hofstadter and many others, is is very important touchstone for me, especially now when I'm thinking more about these issues. Um, and then as a, as, a, as a civil war strategist, although I'm no kind of buff and I, you know, I, I sometimes I would confuse my various battles, but just the general, for example, what to do with Fort Sumter. You know? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Absolute genius there. Almost, you know, you could say Machiavellian genius, but there's a genius there uh-huh. for sure. Yeah. Um, again, perhaps an unfair question, but one that our, our listeners will be interested to hear your thoughts as we conclude here. You've been deeply concerned about threats to the country and to its political, economic, and moral health. What's the biggest challenge or threat facing America in the next decade? I think it's it's the combination of corporate power, the likes of, let's say, Jeff Bezos, finding legitimation for exploitative labor practices anti-competitive behavior, trust-like behavior, um, finding legitimation for that in a kind of biomedical tyranny of, uh, of, of the COVID age. And I, so that's, a, that's one, right? Where it's like, um, if you have traditional justice claims as a workers movement, as a small business or whatever, all of that must be set aside because there's a, there's a pandemic. And um, so that this, it's this combination of state power and corporate power against the little guy. And that's it. I mean, with that kind of list of characters that I listed from Jacksonians to, to, yeah. to Lind, um, that's an ongoing concern in American life. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, I, I, I just love encountering certain quotes. I mentioned it in my speech last night. You could, you could have lifted 
a quote from Grover Cleveland, his his um, say final address to uh, to the Congress, where he's like, "We look around and we see trusts. We look around and we see corporations that um, treat themselves as masters of the law rather than its servants, and so forth." He could have, you know, changed the vocabulary a little bit, mm-hmm. the vernacular, and it, he would be addressing 2021. You hear a lot of doom and gloom these days about America. Mm-hmm. You hear a lot about division, decline. Um, we live in a very uncertain age, as you call it, an age of chaos. Mm-hmm. As an immigrant to this country, are you still hopeful about the prospects for America? The way I put it is um, I, I put myself in the shoes of the protagonist of um, um, the French novel Submission by Michel Welbeck, where he um, obviously has, is an Islamist takeover of France. And he, he has a um, uh, Israeli, I'm sorry, he, a Jewish girlfriend. And so as the Islamist party takes over, she's like, well, I guess I'm going to make Aliyah to Israel. I'm gonna... And he then sort of, the protagonist turns to us and sort of says, uh, oh, I don't have an Israel. This is it. So what I mean by that is I don't have a, this is it. We ha- I have, I'm fully American, you know, a grateful immigrant at the end of the day. So we have to make this country work. So there's just no other choice but to be hopeful. Right. And, and if that's we... an American tradition too. It sure is. And if we don't, who will? There you go. So, Rob Amari, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice. Subscribe for more at ashbrook.org slash AmericanIdeaPod and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at AmIdeaPodcast. From the SRAM Library in Ashland, Ohio, I'm Jeff Sickett.